You know how you get to that point in medicine rather early in your career where after about 15 minutes with a certain person, you know that the only dose of opioid that's going to get them out of 10 out of 10 pain is a dose two milligrams short of the fatal dose? And that intuition is kind of how I am with hyponatremia for the majority of my patients. And it took me a while to get there, meaning I am pretty darn accurate just by a good history and physical and often chart review for figuring out what is causing the problem without doing a bunch of labs. That's not to say there aren't times where I do need to check a bunch of labs other than the basic ones that have already been completed, but subjectively I feel that's less than 20% of the time I need to do that. And I think the reason there is such a failure for people to understand hyponatremia, even after they feel like they spent a lot of time trying to learn it, is that often the way it is taught academically doesn't build any intuition. So I think we got to move away from that kind of algorithmic teaching and thinking in this specific topic. There are times where I still access some algorithms on this, but usually don't need to and still get it right. And my residents tell me this all the time that they just feel like this is one of the harder topics for them to comprehend and learn. And just like I think it's time to congratulate drugs for winning the war on drugs, I do think it's time to move away from a purely numbers thought process of hyponatremia. Not that it's ever been purely numbers, but you get what I mean. It's a lot of serum osmolality and urine sodiums and all these things that I'm going to talk about just a little bit, but often just the basic labs you have not only get you started, but ultimately you don't have a lot of time to make a decision to wait on people to urinate and the nurse to collect it and the lab to run it and particularly you to remember to look at all those things in between your next 10 patients. And if you learn hyponatremia intuitively, one, I think you'll feel very comfortable rarely using a nephrologist to consult on hyponatremia. It's definitely happened where I do need a nephrologist, but usually that's because either I don't want to go down alone because it's already a bad situation when I'm picking up the patient, or I am lazy, or I want to provide an ADH clamp with constant 3% saline adjustment, which I'm not even going to get into because that's pretty complicated and very rarely needed. I will be fair and say that there are a bunch of my colleagues that sometimes are just out of residency and sometimes are my older colleagues that just never felt comfortable with hyponatremia and do consult nephrology very frequently. And the nephrologists that know me as soon as I pick up those patients for my week on service or whatever, they almost always sign off or don't even see the patient that day once they see my name on it. And that's not bragging at all. I'm just saying that they know, just like they know which one of their end-stage renal disease patients are compliant or not, they know which internists and hospitalists know hyponatremia and which ones they should not trust with it. So let's just jump into it. The first thing I ask my residents when they do admit somebody with hyponatremia is, is the patient on a thiazide diuretic? And the second thing I ask my residents is, is the patient on a thiazide diuretic? Because you'd be surprised at how often somebody says, no, they're not on a thiazide. Either the patient didn't remember it, or the resident didn't have a complete medication list, or 
It isn't appreciated that one of their blood pressure medications like Valsartan or Amlodipine are combination tablets with the thiazide diuretic. So that's always my first questions. Now, the rest of hyponatremia, I still think you can get from questioning the patient and looking briefly at the chart. So obviously, if there's very significant hyperglycemia, as you often see in DKA or non-ketotic severe hyperglycemia, you use the appropriate correction factor or calculator in your phone, and you realize quickly that's just pseudo-hyponatremia. There can be other causes of pseudo-hyponatremia, such as hypertriglyceridemia, or a lot of proteins in the blood like multiple myeloma. And this almost certainly is not real hyponatremia. Now, if you look at the algorithms or go to an academic lecture, they say, well, check the osmolality because a low serum osmolality is true hyponatremia or a normal osmolality or high serum osmolality is often an elevated protein like multiple myeloma, Waldenstrom's, could be IVIG that the patient got, or it could be severe hypertriglyceridemia. And therefore, at some point, if it's not an obvious reason as to why someone has hyponatremia, I am totally not opposed to checking the serum osmolality. But if someone comes in, they have DKA and their sugar is 460 and it corrects, I really don't do any further lab tests for hyponatremia, particularly if it just resolves with the usual insulin and fluid treatments. Okay, so moving along with questions I often ask of my residents or of the patient or just by doing a chart review is one, is there chronic hyponatremia like a reset osmostat? And so that's pretty easy to do if you have old labs. Just see what the last sodiums were over the past many months and years. Maybe this isn't a totally new issue, but if you don't have old labs, you have to assume that it probably is an acute issue. The next thing I wanna know is does the patient have polydipsia? Now, oftentimes in the past, this has been what's called psychogenic polydipsia and people with mental health issues, but I've been noticing that a lot of times over the past several years, people are going on social media or even news outlets that say you have to drink this many liters of water a day and they're listening to that advice which is usually based on absolutely nothing and so they're forcing water and that more often is a cause of polydipsia in my own experience than the so-called psychogenic polydipsia. And then of course you hear stories I can't say I've seen it much where people have done marathons and obviously drinking a lot of free water or probably one I have seen once in a while is you know the rave scene so taking some ecstasy and a lot of those people are drinking a lot of water that sometimes can be a polydipsia that can cause hyponatremia by the way i'm sorry if you're hearing the windstorm in the background coming over your headphones it's colorado in the winter okay so the next thing i want to know is is there hypervolemia meaning is there edema or a condition that would cause hypervolemia like chf cirrhosis end-stage renal disease, not infrequent reasons to be hospitalized where you miss dialysis sessions or CHF got out of hand and you're hypervolemic and as a result you're hyponatremic. And the exact same thing is true with the opposite which is hypovolemia where you're fluid depleted. How many patients do we admit with some form of gastroenteritis, intractable vomiting, diarrhea, 
They may have had blood loss. They may have taken too much diuretic and are too volume depleted. Their vitals may show hypotension and tachycardia, and they may be complaining of a really dry mouth. Now, why does hypovolemia cause hyponatremia? Because you're temporarily releasing ADH, antidiuretic hormone, appropriately. It's not SIADH. It's not a syndrome of inappropriate ADH release. You're releasing ADH because you're volume depleted, that hypovolemia once corrected with fluids, will usually turn off the ADH and the hyponatremia will slowly disappear. There are other things that can cause a transient vasopressin increase. And by the way, ADH and vasopressin, same thing. So what can do that in the hospital? Well, pain can do it. And a lot of people are in pain for various reasons. Just being nauseous can sometimes transiently release vasopressin in post-operative states. You'll often see people drop their sodium. And remember, we're a few minutes into this already, and not once are we talking about what's the urine sodium and all these other labs. Now, we'll get to a little bit of that. But my point is, intuitively, with the right history and physical and a brief review of the medications and the old sodiums and the BMP, you usually can just figure this out without jumping to a bunch of algorithms and labs. Now, another really important thing to ask and look for on the chart is do they take an SSRI? Are they on Prozac? Are they on Zoloft? And the reason is if they are taking something like that, like Lexapro or whatever, it's one of the most common causes of drug-induced hyponatremia. And then what you ultimately have to do is weigh that risk of rapid withdrawal of SSRI, which can be pretty hard on some people, versus their degree of hyponatremia. Because if it's very mild hyponatremia and they're not symptomatic, sometimes there are times where you just want to keep the SSRI going or maybe go at a lower dose. There are times where you're going to just have to pull a list of medications that can cause SIDH. So in my head, I know a few, carbamazepine, valproate, opioids frequently can be a cause of SIADH, and certain anti-cancer drugs, particularly some of the old anti-chemotherapeutic drugs, are still used for a lot of conditions. Okay, what are some other causes of SIDH? Well, the classic ones are things like small cell tumors or pneumonias or central nervous system tumors. And again, a lot of the times when you're admitting patients to a hospital, there may be a chest x-ray done in the ER or a head CT or one done in the recent past, you know, in the last few months for a different visit of some reason. And oftentimes, they're done for the reason that they're being emitted. So again, if you have CHF or pneumonia, not uncommon reasons to be admitted to the hospital, or if they have confusion or some sort of cognitive change, oftentimes that is from the hyponatremia itself, but a head CT was done. And so you're very briefly looking at the imaging and doing that type of chart review. And of course, if the radiologist or you feel that on the chest x-ray, there may be a small cell cancer, well, that could be driving the SIDH. Just looking at the BMP, if they have hyperkalemia, 
particularly if there's other signs or symptoms of adrenal insufficiency like hypotension, because ultimately that might push you to a cortisol stimulation test, which may get you to the diagnosis faster than sending a bunch of urine osmolalities and urine sodiums. Just looking at or checking a TSH if one hasn't been done in the last few months because severe hypothyroidism can cause hyponatremia, though I gotta say that has been extremely rare for me to see in my career. Yet, if someone has really low energy, I think things like hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency are always worth considering. And I gotta say, my favorite childhood memory is having energy. Yet if you think you're dealing with a situation where there's an extreme loss of what the patient's usual energy is, those are things worth considering. And then I always really want to know, is the patient on a low-sodium diet for CHF or hypertension? By the way, I am not a believer in low-sodium diets, and I'm glad that it's becoming mainstream to question this. In fact, I will put in a plug for another medical podcast, Core IM, where I think they did probably the best episode of the year in I Am Podcasting, which is episode number 67, Salt Restriction Heart Failure, in which they help blow apart some of this low-sodium nonsense that has been going on and impossible almost to stop this dogma in the cardiology world and hospice world and outpatient world and at a very minimum, need some true randomized controlled trials if we're going to keep pushing this dogma of people that actually follow the diets, which is very few people. And, you know, the caveat to that is that I will also say it's very important not to follow a high sodium diet as that will get you into flash pulmonary edema and worsening hypertension and CHF. But I don't think that means you have to follow a low-sodium diet. That all aside, there are people that follow low-sodium diets. I have had patients that do because either they have read about that it's a good thing to do or they have really actually been following the advice by physicians. And as a result, they develop hyponatremia. And there's very few things that drive me more nuts in the hospital because I see this all the time people with hyponatremia on a cardiac low-sodium diet. We should not be putting people with hyponatremia on low-sodium diets. All right, all that aside for a second, as I go off on that tangent, there is also, of course, this beer drinkers, potomania, where on occasion there's beer drinkers out there. That's really the only way that they're getting these basically empty calories and so they have very poor dietary solute intake, often in conjunction with almost no protein intake. So if you're on these very low protein diets, sometimes not purposefully, so you may just be on a what they call tea and toast diet because you really don't have the money to buy adequate food or just drink beer or just drink beer and eat a lot of bread and drink some tea. I don't know, pick your combination. But ultimately the point is, is that you can be in a situation where you're just not ingesting enough solutes of sodium and you're on too low of a sodium diet and you can get hyponatremia. And again, the bigger point being is that ultimately, the way you figure this out, I don't really think is gonna be from labs, but rather the history and talking to the patient. And labs sometimes can be really problematic in hyponatremia. For example, Urine sodium is often increased if there's recent diuretics, and I usually won't test urine sodium if somebody recently took diuretics. Likewise, if you have 
late stage chronic kidney disease like end stage renal disease I find that a really difficult situation to understand what the urine sodium means to assess it accurately even if they are making a little bit of urine but that all being said I will be the first to admit that there are times and it's not totally infrequent where I do check a urine sodium to see am I on the right track with my thinking or could it help guide my thinking in another direction so if I do see a decreased urine sodium, you know, less than 30 millimoles, then I am thinking CHF, cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, diarrhea. But again, I can't narrow it down to one of those without talking to the patient and see what's going on clinically. And the same thing is true if you have an increased urine sodium. So if it's greater than 30 millimoles, you haven't definitively diagnosed what caused the hyponatremia. Now you've narrowed it down to SIDH will do that. We'll have greater than 30 millimoles and increased urine sodium. But again, there's a lot of causes of SIDH. If you also are looking at increased urine sodium, maybe adrenal insufficiency, renal and cerebral salt wasting. I know cerebral salt wasting is controversial, but I feel like I have seen it on very rare occasion. Though the bigger point, and I'm probably making some hyponatremic lecture or nephrologist go insane here, is I would much rather have history, physical, and basic labs than access to urine sodiums. Again, I'm happy to have urine osmolality and sodiums, and it's not an either or. But if I was forced to pick, I can get it more right, more accurately from just knowing the history, physical, brief chart review, and everything I've said. So let me move a little bit into hyponatremia treatment because actually sometimes that does influence the etiology of what you're seeing meaning you can get at a diagnostic etiology just by how someone does or does not respond to treatment. So a perfect example of that is often hyponatremic patients, at least in my hospital, are given a liter or two of normal saline in the ER. And if that trial of volume expansion is attempted and there is a rise in sodium with something like NS or LR, to me, that is often just diagnostic in itself that there was hypovolemic hyponatremia. And that volume is what turned off that excessive ADH release. It was appropriately excessive because the ADH was doing its job. That ADH or vasopressin was trying to keep the body from losing more volume. And remember, vasopressin also increases blood pressure, so you're not too hypotensive. But let's say it wasn't an appropriate release of ADH, so it was SIADH, a syndrome of inappropriate ADH release. Well, what happens when you give normal saline and SIADH? And almost all of you have seen this. The sodium drops more. Why? because the sodium in that bag of saline is urinated out and the water is retained. And therefore that simple measure of just rechecking a sodium when the patient comes to the floor from the ER often can point you in the direction as to whether this is SIADH or hypovolemia that responded to volume with crystalloids. And I'm not trying to talk you out of doing a urine osmolality or urine sodium or whatever you're gonna be doing. But ultimately, again, you pretty much know the diagnosis by that response to something like normal saline when it comes to SIDH or hypovolemic hyponatremia. 
no memorization of what lab values mean that you don't often use, but rather using your clinical intuition based on what you have just observed. Well, since we're on the topic of hyponatremia treatment, I will just say a few more things. Um, I think most of you know this, but at the very basics, you'd usually want to use a fluid restriction that slowly corrects things like SIDH, chronic hyponatremia, and hypervolemic hyponatremia. And that's why almost everybody goes on a fluid restriction, meaning we order it, when there is not hypovolemic hyponatremia, and as a result, they haven't responded to something like normal saline, then they're going to be on a fluid restriction. All right. Obviously, sometimes we have to use 3% saline in symptomatic hyponatremia. So if there's been a seizure or major cognitive changes like major delirium, um, sometimes if there's significantly low sodium with things like falls, we want to use intermittent 3% saline boluses. What do I mean by that? Usually 100 milliliter bolus is what I do and then recheck the serum sodium in about an hour and then sometimes repeat that 3% saline bolus depending on what I'm seeing both clinically and in the numbers change. I'm not a big fan of continuous 3% saline unless I know I'm going to be super on top of it in watching those labs. So I don't really use continuous 3% saline and I have seen people sued for that, meaning they had way too fast of a correction and got into a situation of central pontimalonysis. Very rare to see that, even if you do overly rapidly correct, but it does happen. I have seen cases. And one of them was in my group many years ago. All right, so what else do I do to treat hyponatremia? Well, I often give loop diuretics in congestive heart failure, sometimes cirrhosis, you know, overload syndromes. But what often happens, and actually you can use loop diuretics and SIDH with success as well, is that you're eliminating more water than you are sodium. I must say I don't frequently use it as a first choice in SIDH. I'm more with the fluid restriction and some other measures. But ultimately, loop diuretics is an option in SIDH, but it is a very early, if not the first option for me, in congestive heart failure fluid overload where there's so much water around that you've diluted the sodium causing hyponatremia. Another treatment which bears repeating, though I kind of said this already, is allow these patients to eat salt. They should not be on a cardiac salt restricted diet even if they have active CHF. Fluid restrict them, use the diuretics, but do not restrict sodium in somebody who has hyponatremia. Along those lines, I am often giving sodium chloride tablets. And this reminds me of a lecture I saw in hyponatremia. This was years and years and years ago at an ACP conference. I think it was one of our local Colorado chapter. But anyway, the lecturer, she was a very young attending, I think one or two years out of residency. And she was asked the question about sodium chloride tablets. She said, don't use them. And she was a young attending at a very prestigious school and academic hospitalist, but I think she was kind of thrown with the question and really did not answer that correctly. Now let me go back to fluid restriction because when you order fluid restriction, the more restricted you order, meaning it's harder to be on a thousand milliliter restriction over 24 hours than it is 2000 milliliters. So patients hate fluid restriction as you would if we ordered it for you. 
And therefore, if you use sodium chloride tablets, often what you will find is you will be able to liberalize that fluid restriction and allow a bit more fluids because they're getting more of the sodium salt solute and therefore that ratio of water restriction to sodium intake is improved. Now I have seen a lot of people that say they were taught not to use salt tablets. If you can tell me why and give me some resources to read about that, I am happy to learn why that is. I definitely think there's certain patients that don't do well with salt tablets. Often they're, as you can imagine, if you ate a lot of salt, very uncomfortable on the tummy. And I definitely want to think about the patient population I'm giving it to, meaning if they've had flash pulmonary edema from eating salt rapidly, like they downed a lot of soup and potato chips and ended up in the hospital with flash pulmonary edema, probably that's not a patient I'm going to put on salt tablets. But in general, for a lot of situations of hyponatremia, I don't think they are a bad idea. Okay, how about the Vaptans, Tolvaptan and stuff? So vasopressin receptor antagonists, they can definitely be considered for SIDH, CHF, or cirrhosis etiology of hyponatremia, but there are a couple problems. First of all, they can overcorrect. If you don't know how to use these medicines, don't use them. Um, that's when you do want to get a nephrology or cardiology consult. And by the way, <laughs> so our P&T committee, which I'm on, Pharmacy and Therapeutics, made it a rule that you have to get nephrology or cardiology to use the Vaptans, which is funny because a lot of cardiologists when I'm on service will ask me to consult for hyponatremia. And I must admit, I do use these medications once in a while, and the pharmacist has never questioned me on that, but most of them know me pretty well at the hospital. We've all worked together for a long time. But point being is you can overcorrect, and if you're going to use these Vaptan therapies, I don't think you should have them ever on a fluid restriction at the same time, and likewise would not be giving fluids through the IV. Um, so they are very expensive at this point in time, usually a few hundred dollars a tablet. And so I use this medication very infrequently. And I have one time in the recent past where I had an almost seemed intractable SIDH from a terrible small cell cancer all over the body. And there are some patients that need to take these medications chronically with their CHF, but Again, pretty rare and definitely not the first choice, the second choice, the third choice, but kind of when you're running out of options. Another medication, and this is really based on diagnosis, is if you do have mineral corticoid deficiency and you have found that or you know they have it underlying and they're developing hyponatremia, flugicortisone can be used. And finally, just want to end with a few words about central pontine myelinysis. So when you have too rapid a correction of hyponatremia, that is the risk that you develop this CPM. And therefore, you either want to slow the rate or actually sometimes reverse and drop the sodium a bit. So what are the conditions that are associated with a higher risk of developing central pontine myelinysis? One if they have hypokalemia at the time of the diagnosis of hyponatremia, that increases your risk if you have too rapid of a correction that you could develop CPM. Alcoholics, those with liver disease, 
and severe malnutrition. Now think about a lot of times those all go together, right? You have an alcoholic with liver disease and hypokalemia and poor nutrition. And you want to be extra careful about not overly correcting too rapidly the sodium in those situations. So the other is just based on the degree and severity of hyponatremia. You know, some people say under 105, your risk of CPM is high if you go too quickly. I must say that when I see hyponatremia with the sodium less than 110 or 112, my nerves are tingling a little bit and I really don't want to go too quickly in those patients, but also realize that if they're very symptomatic, which they often are, sometimes you have to go a little quicker initially with something like 3% saline, but your total rise in a very high-risk patient, you're usually trying to limit the sodium correction to under 8 millimoles per day. Otherwise, other than those high-risk patients with hyponatremia, and it's kind of nice that the guidelines are starting to come together on this a little bit better. And in general, they are saying that the desired correction rate ideally should be less than 10 millimoles per liter per day. And therefore, what I usually shoot for is something around 8 millimoles. And if it is 9 or 10, I don't feel that bad about it. But if you are noticing that things are moving way too fast, you are going to have to take measures to not only slow the rate, but sometimes reverse that sodium rise. And there are a few cases of hyponatremia that I have each year where it is humbling. It's kind of like those brittle diabetics where you're either too high or too low no matter what you do. But that's medicine. You can do everything right. And sometimes people are really, really responsive to what you're doing, overly responsive or not responsive enough. But that's not always your fault. See, I don't let anybody tell me I am worthless because I know my kidney could fetch a decent price on the black market. And with that, I'm going to end this topic and I will catch you on the next round. My name is Dr. Gil Parrott.